0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Joint Venture, a podcast that delves deep into the global renewable energy and infrastructure sectors. I'm John McNair, and this week we are back with a second of two special episodes in partnership with Gowling WLG. In this episode, you'll hear a recent conversation I had with Nate Curtis, a banking and finance partner at Gowling WLG, and Chris Williams, Head of Project Finance London at the bank LBPW. Nath, Chris and I focused in on the financing perspective for UK subsidy-free renewables projects, taking in topics such as the impact of power price movement, the impact of COVID-19, what the optimal power purchase agreement looks like, and the prospect of subsidy returning to onshore wind and solar. Other issues on the agenda included the longer-term viability of either fully merchant projects or those of at least some form of merchant exposure, as well as how the level of government intervention stacks up against the requirements to meet the binding decarbonisation targets the UK has set. So let's hear more from Nathan Chris now as they give their perspective on all these issues. Well thanks Chris and Nath for joining uh, me today on this episode of the podcast and uh, we're here of course um, to talk about the crucial financing aspect of uh, non-subsidy renewables projects in the UK. Um, Nath perhaps to kick off with you first, what's your general kind of view on the current landscape in the market for financing projects?
1: Sure John, thank you. Um it's an interesting stage, I think, in the market at the moment. We continue to see a lot of activity as we have done over the last few years in the secondary market, um, by which I mean really uh, portfolio refinancing uh, and MA activity. Um, where I think there's less certainty, and this isn't just a function of what's been going on with COVID 19, but has been the case for various factors for, for several years now, is on the new build you know, slash construction side. And I think there, developers of um, renewable projects are facing a number of um, interlinked challenges, um, which really are created by the level of uncertainty that we have in the market at the moment, which creates a real lack of visibility around um, long-term cash flows. And I think there is no um, single cause of, of that uncertainty. Uh, I think it's a, it's a combination of different factors. Um, but it is clear that until some of those things at least start to become a bit more transparent, I think we're going to continue to see contraction in the construction financing market for, you know, for new projects.
0: Okay. And Chris, your view, you know, have mentioned a number of uncertainties there. Are you, are you feeling those too?
2: Yeah, very much the same, John. Um, we, we as a, as a Landers Bank, we, we, we're very much focused on the subsidy um, projects rather than basically non-subsidy projects. But that said, obviously, with deals that, as no they said, are going through refinancing, portfolio refinancings, the old rock deals, they do have an element of uh, sort of. Non-subsidy within them anyway, so there is an element of market risk in those, and we do look at those transactions, but we're not really going to the full non-subsidy deals at the moment. I think the market itself is very much sort of with CFD prices on the offshore, for example, having sort of fallen to below forty pound a megawatt hour. Now there is a there is a mix coming through with regard to elements of market risk, more market risk in transactions. Um, which is being supported in various ways by the developers and the sponsors um, to make lenders comfortable or more comfortable, um, and obviously, sort of, there's a tipping point as to how much leverage you can then put into those transactions as well. So, I, I think we are at a sort of a, a crossroads. Um, certainly, sort of, from our perspective, we still see that there are opportunities in the in the CFD market. Um, for offshore winds and um, for example in Ireland at the moment RES has just come into play um, which is a subsidy regime it's non-indexed from the revenue perspective um, which, which we're sort of working our way through as well but um, there are definitely opportunities there where we can still see projects with subsidy and from my perspective we cover UK and Ireland so that from is good news um, to look at those and we're looking at various solar and uh, wind deals at the moment over there
0: and uh, you mentioned cfds there and res and perhaps we can come on to those um processes specifically uh, a little later um le- least of all because uh, onshore wind and, and solar could could come back to uh the uh the, U- the cfd process in the uk um but you know with projects with cfd or or projects entirely non-subsidy you are seeing lots of ppas obviously signed on those deals, I mean, Nath, from your perspective, um, how's the PPA side of things sort of evolving um, across this year? Uh, has there been a big impact? I mean, from things like chief of all, I suppose, COVID and and its effects on power prices.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think to an extent that there has, John. Um, if you look at the demand curve for power in this country. Um, Throughout the year, I think I think we're about 5% down on a year um, by year comparison back to 2019 for July in terms of demand. Um, the August figures, I think, are due to be released next week. So it'll be interesting to see whether that gap is being made up now that people are attempting at least to go back to work and um, also some semblance of of return to normality in in social life as well, um, so there clearly has been an impact on both day ahead prices, but also the long term power curve um, wholesale prices too. Um, but I don't think we can blame that entirely on COVID. Um, there was already some uncertainty, I think, in the um, in in the in the power pricing market before um, this happened, and um, you yeah, know, that's where the CFD instrument I think is going to become um, important again for onshore developers. We've seen um, CFDs rolled out into the offshore space in my view very successfully. Um, I think by and large it's done what it was designed to do in the offshore market and it would be interesting to see whether um, you know what comes out of the current consultation. Um, We're talking about the impact of COVID of course. Really basic Impact that it's had, including the delay to the uh, consultation period under the um, under the CFD onshore uh, current consultation you know, that that was pushed out by a month because of COVID. So we're still waiting to see what the shape of that will look like, um, and what capacity and um, overall revenue caps the government will seek to place uh, on the overall CFD scheme, and indeed whether it um, it will, as I think it's minded to do. Create, we'll go back to the creation of a pot one scheme for established technologies excluding offshore wind so that um, onshore wind isn't asked to compete with offshore wind. So we'll just kind of have to wait and see how that process plays out. But I think if we're talking about unsubsidized projects in the absence of a CFD, then I think it remains difficult that you know there's been lots of discussion for a long time now really about the availability of corporate PPAs, but you know, kind of what we're seeing is that they remain fairly elusive, particularly on the sort of long-term price certain basis that developers need in order to get you know um, life uh, asset life cash flow certainty, um, and then there are some. Um, there is some semblance, I think, of a return to the utility floor price PPA model. And Again, pricing under those contracts, I think, is, is difficult to make things work economically because of the impact of COVID, but also other factors on the long-term power price curve.
0: And just picking up um, on that last point and, and throwing it to you, Chris, and they said um, – it, it could be difficult um, to make the economics work on on those kind of deals. Um, is that is that what you're seeing as well?
2: Um, we, what we're seeing is, is sort of sort of the, the electricity prices, for various reasons, including COVID, have fallen. Um, I still think there's a way that you can make deals work, whether you by Financial structuring and, and and other ways of changing the economic You may not have the leverage that you had originally in a transaction or sort of pre-COVID, um, but deals can still work. And and also, uh, the design life of these assets is is getting longer. Um, so therefore, there is also sort of a, a natural ability to sort of either look at repowering or basically uh, extending again after a term. Um, so. I think there are ways that we will be able to to manage these. I think it will be different from what we had before. Um, but at least to say at the moment, that sort of what Nath was saying about 5% down on prices at the moment on on the wholesale market. Yeah, we've definitely seen, seen that. And maybe a little bit more, to be fair, as, as a consequence of the um, Q1 numbers that came through for 2020, pre-COVID, post-COVID, and the expectation that it will take a Few years for those prices to ramp back up again, so all of those things are going to have a, an impact, but we're still seeing deals close. I mean, the good thing is, the market is still as robust as it has been pre COVID, and I would say we, we've seen an awful lot of opportunities coming through across our desk. Um, if you look, Seagreen closed, which was the latest offshore wind transaction, that closed almost in the eye of the storm. Um, it started. Pre-COVID, closed slightly into in, in May, um, and, and effectively was was under it and got away. So so deals are still being done. Yes, there was a spike in uh, reduction in electricity prices, increases in cost of funds. All of these things had to work their way through. Um, but I think we're getting back to much more normality now in terms of sort of cost of funds for for, for banks than we were at the beginning of COVID. Um, but electricity prices will take a while to come back. But deals are getting taking longer to close. We've definitely seen that, um, but they are still closing. Um, and we look forward to seeing the sort of the next round of greenfield deals coming through. Um, but there are still those opportunities which may have been put on the back burner from a refinancing perspective, taking a bit longer to be done. Um but they are still being done, and so we closed a refinancing in the middle of august, um which which was an onshore wind portfolio. um so the deals are still out there to to be executed, which is great uh,
1: and I completely agree with that, and I think um yeah, you know, if you look at the long term position, you know the the factors which make the u k renewable industry so um, attractive, you know, remain very much in play. We have to get to net zero by 2050. You know, the um, the estimate is we need 100 gigawatts of new uh, low carbon electricity generation in order to be able to hit those numbers. So that's a huge amount of development that remains, uh, you know, to be required in order to reach those ambitions. And I think um, if you combine that with, you know, as Chris was alluding to. Um, The advancement in technology, albeit there are still for onshore deals, some planning restrictions, which make taking full advantage of those advances um, slightly more difficult. Um, But also the lowering of the costs in the supply chain, which is remarkable. Really, if you look at where we were five years ago, even in offshore wind, um, that people are now getting CFDs for under 40 pounds a megawatt uh, is is just an incredible um, uh, advance in in uh, supply costs Um, and uh, for those reasons there will be over the long term um, tremendous opportunity in the renewables market Um, and some of that will have to be unsubsidised because the subsidies aren't going to be there for every project Um, and the good developers will, as they have been doing already, take advantage of those market conditions in order to be able to get new projects away.
0: And you know picking up on on something you said there Nate so you know the 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 massive kind of um, reduction in in costs we've seen over the past few years and, and the development of technologies um, perhaps if I turn that to you Chris and leaders uh, on to perhaps the prospect of of pure merchant projects and I know that's not something that you or particularly many people do um, at the moment but what what would it take for that to become a kind of viable reality
2: um i i, th- I think the points that, that you made the, the lower of the cost of the cap- capital expenditure the design life of assets may make, make the ability for sort of um an asset cost to to be looked at differently with regard to uh, an unsubsidized maybe a corporate ppa as you said that, that, that's there um from my side you sort of if you go back to corporate PPAs, you've got to got to have the right one. You're comfortable with it from a lending perspective and, and basically it's un, un, underpinning uh, the, the electricity generation. So there, there will be opportunities here um, and subsidies are coming down. That, that they're getting lower all the time. So there's going to be a need to replace this, particularly as May says with regard to net carbon uh, zero by 2050. Uh, the amount of offshore turbines that are going to be needed to generate um, that electricity. I think I read something only today, which was suggesting it was another six and a half thousand turbines. I, th- I think these things will evolve. I think that people have been very used to the subsidy regimes and, and, and the way things have been done in the past. And and it's a learning curve for everybody to go on a different journey in a different, different way. Um, that takes time. There have been some deals that have been done, and in other in in other jurisdictions, you see more of that already in Scandinavia, for example. Um, the UK market hasn't had to see that to date um, because of the way the subsidy regimes have worked. So it it sort of will just evolve over time. I think is is how I see this, and it will evolve as quickly as people can get themselves comfortable with with the risk profile that exists.
0: And in terms of uh, getting comfortable, Chris, I mean, you mentioned PPAs then the right PPAs. What what does that specifically kind of look like for you at the moment?
2: The right PPA is going back to the basics of sort of strong counterparty, underpinning, um, whether it's just the sort of PPA, we're not seeing floor prices in the PPAs anymore, um, but it's just a, it's a route to market PPA um but it's working with the, the right counterparties who've got lots of experience in this um you're seeing different ways of people approaching the, the day ahead market and the intraday markets now so you just want to work with the right people that understands the how dynamic our, uh, our environment is with regard to electricity at the moment and it is dynamic it, it really is dynamic so um you just just want to work with those people that have a, a very good understanding of it.
0: Okay. And and Nath, um, uh, on deals you're seeing, a, are, you, are you seeing any kind of coming across your desk these days with a sort of sizable merchant element at all? Or is that still kind of some way off? My, my, my sense is that it's still
1: some way off for um, you know, UK renewable generation projects. Um, you know, there are some sectors where people have been able to raise limited recourse debt, which are essentially, you know, um, banked on a merchant basis. And in particular, the storage sector, I think is interesting and somewhat counterintuitively. It's to be interesting to see whether we can learn some lessons from what's happened in storage, um, uh, and, and apply those lessons into more established, um, sectors, but the one of the issues is the sample size for um, that technology is very small, and deals have been tend to tend to have be been done on a very sort of bespoke basis. So whether you can draw real conclusions from those um, deals that have been done in the market um, and apply them generally, uh, I'm somewhat kind of skeptical about that. Um, the other kind of option that some developers will have, of course, is to wrap uh, an element of merchant risk into bigger portfolios, particularly where they have assets, operating assets especially, that already have access to uh, ROCS or FITS or CFDs um, and can use those projects to leverage um, additional capital to be able to fund the build out of unsubsidised slash kind of merchant risk projects, um, but equalising the risk to, to lenders in particular because of the portfolio effect.
2: I was just going to say that's a really good point because effectively you can bring your existing portfolio together with new greenfield development and wrap it together so that you are equalizing that risk for lenders in in, in such a way that basically you've got a portfolio diversification approach. You've got a wrap of lots of um, assets together and effectively overall, one piece of it could be seen as merchant fully merchant but effectively it's in a portfolio with with lots of others that are are wrapped by rocks and fits etc cfds so i think that is is definitely one way that you can start to see that moving forward for developers with their existing portfolios
0: we've we've spoken um, a moment ago about power prices and what happened this year um on that and where we are compared to last year i mean what are you you both hearing on um, you know the longer term um, forecast for for power price? I'm sure it's something you, you you know keenly keep an eye on, particularly if you're investing potentially long longer term or you know working on deals that are or assets that are very long term. Now, um, it did seem to be a sense that they were softening anyway before the the crisis this year. I mean, um, where are we headed over the next next years
2: with power prices, Chris? Perhaps if you want to um go first i think there was a softening i think there was a softening coming anyway um as you've got more installed capacity coming through anyway sort of uh, that that just seems to be sort of a, a natural evolution as, as we go closer to uh carbon neutral by 2050 as well um but i think um it was exacerbated by the fact of COVID and the fact that the supply and demand dynamics completely changed with uh, lockdown and no one working and no need for for, for, for that ut- utilisation of energy, electricity. Um, I say I think it was quite stark at the beginning of April when effectively you started to see how much was not being used Um Gas prices fell, oil prices fell. Everything was sort of in, in, in the same boat. Um, and it's taken a while for that to come back. And you think we've sort of been in lockdown for nearly six months now. And we're only now just starting to see tentative steps of coming back to offices and, and, and people coming back. Um, that That's going to take an awful lot of time to sort of get back up to the levels that we were pre-March. Um, but it is, it is going to happen. Um, the forecasts are very much softly softly growing back, as I say, sort of probably over a four or five-year period to where they were before. Um, but I think the, the, the trajectory is always going to be sort of towards lower long-term electricity prices anyway. So I think that, that was always going to be the end game in terms of where we get to. Um, we've had this spike, this dip. Um, because of COVID. But effectively, they will be flowing that way on a long, long, long dated basis.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think we, uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to say that the uh, renewable energy industry as a whole had been successful if we weren't seeing that long-term trajectory towards cheaper power prices, the whole point of you know, why we all turn up to work. So, uh, in that in that regard, it's both uh, I think inevitable, but also welcome as well. Um, now, the flip side of that is it's more difficult to get projects away. Um, then you know the market has to respond to that um but you know the answer is not to wish for um higher long term power prices necessarily but you know, I do think that you know playing into this will be the um the further electrification of transport and also heat um and it'd be interesting to see what impact those things has on the you know the power price and the and the electricity market long term you know, as we move away from um diesel and petrol fuel cars and particularly in public transport too um and to see whether we can get a proper um, electrification of heat industry in this country uh, or whether we'll continue to rely on um, fossil fuels for heat uh, over the longer term. I think that'll be a really interesting development, but I don't think anybody really knows quite how quickly that change is going to come about at this point in time.
0: Well, if you take, um, you know, just just personal vehicles um, on their own and, and you know, and, and maybe come to heat uh, in a separate conversation, but there's something like 30 million cars in the uk private vehicles um if even a, a chunk of those go go electric anytime soon um that will surely have an impact wouldn't it i mean what do you think
2: chris yeah i i think it will do i think that the infrastructure has to be there for for the vehicles though and i and i've certainly sort of um, been, been hearing various people say that sort of we would consider moving to electric vehicles if there were more charging points, for example. We weren't worried about having to look at an app to make sure that I wasn't going to run out of distance before I could get to the next one and there was more of those around. So I I think it will go in that direction. Having worked from home for the last several months, I've seen more electric cars around now than than ever before. Um, and, And I think it is going that way. But I think it needs the infrastructure to support that move um, maybe in sort of a a more sort of focused way at the moment to enable people to then make a more informed decision as to say, well, actually, yes, I now feel that I can go to um, an electric vehicle. Um, obviously, price, has, price point has another impact on all of this, and obviously probably there's still a, a bit of a way to go to bring that price down as well. So um, I think it is moving that way, um, but there's a few things that, the car the cars can be built but effectively you just need that infrastructure behind it to support it
1: yeah the, 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 that's that's got to be right and you know there's no doubt that there are some kind of issues with that at the moment you know that there are a number of kind of um, people providing the infrastructure but my sense is it's not yet fully harmonized um such that people want to have certainty they're going to be able to find somewhere to charge, and two that you know when they do it will be compatible with their particular kind of make and model. But there's also, I think, some some other pragmatic concerns that people are beginning to kind of raise and find uh, as electric vehicles become slightly more popular. And, and one is around um, security, um, particularly where you know people are um, trying to charge late at night in sort of dark corners of car parks where. Um, charging stations have been placed and don't feel particularly safe. And that kind of sounds like, you know, a slightly uh, sort of ridiculous example, but actually that's the kind of thing that really will affect people's um, decision making about whether to go and, you know, invest in an electric car or not. I I think where the market is kind of more buoyant is where um, the uh, you know the the vehicle operator can control the infrastructure a bit more. So um, by that I mean particularly in in public transport, so buses and also uh, HGV fleets. And um, we're seeing now, and a, and a client of this firm actually is developing products where they are. Um, Leasing the battery or the batteries uh, for the vehicles, but also installing and maintaining the charging infrastructure on site at the client's premises as, as well. So offering an integrated infrastructure and battery solution. Um, and I think those kind of models are clearly they're only viable where there is critical mass um, within the within the client. But um, those those models are, I think, interesting. And, and you know they put the uh, developer in a position where they can solve the infrastructure problem at the same time as providing the battery solution. Um, so there, are, there is some work being done around that, but whether and how quickly that will spread into or, or cross over into the private vehicle space, I think
0: remains to be seen. Well, if we, if we um, go... Bring it back to um, renewables generation, and I wanted to pick up on on the CFD. I mean, we mentioned it a few times, and, and uh, we've spoken very briefly on on the consultation that happened this year about re- reintroducing onshore wind and solar and um, ways in which that could work. Um, I guess uh, it depends. The, the impact that will have will depend on the ambition and, and, the, and the size of offering. Um, that could come about for onshore wind and solar. Um, uh, what, what do you think, Nate? Is, is that a correct assessment?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think it's you know I mentioned at the beginning that there is uncertainty in the market at the moment. If I'm a if I'm a renewable you know, energy, if I'm an onshore wind developer and I'm looking at this at this point in time, then I'm constrained by a number of different uncertainties. And one of those uncertainties is what is this. Uh, 2021 round of CFDs going to look like? What will be the expectation around the strike price? Um, What will the availability be? Uh, Who will I be competing with? And clearly, we aren't going to know the answers to those questions until we hear back from Ofgen with the results. And, you you know, you'd like to think that there will be something which is reasonably ambitious. Um, But we've been through this so many times before, where there have been you know, fairly positive signals that have been then subsequently you know, not quite lived up to expectation. And you know, one example that I would cite of, of, of that dynamic is the capacity market, um, where you know people really struggled with pricing um, fairly early on, really relatively in the genesis of that particular support mechanism. So I don't think anybody's going to be getting carried away. Until they see the uh, you know the size of the shape and de- the detail uh, of that support,
0: Chris, you mentioned right at the start. You know you CFD projects are uh, something that you obviously um, you know target and feel feel comfortable with. I mean, what's your indicate? Will, will there be uh, a decent enough offering available? Do you think for guys like you and 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 if there is. Um, Will those projects be kind of so competitive um, compared to others outside of that framework?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just just taking a step back, I thought it was extremely positive to hear the noises that solar and onshore are going to come back into the market with, with potential CFD. I agree with Nathan in regards to We don't know what that's going to look like until we know what it's going to look like, but I certainly sort of take a lot of comfort at this point that they're, they're thinking about this, that, that they're moving things in the background in the right direction because effectively sort of we, we need – no, we can't just have over-reliance on offshore wind all the time. So we need to sort of be looking at the onshore and the solar and seeing where we can actually increase that. I'd like to think that sort of there is possible for sort of separate buckets – for different types of technologies, that would be helpful, um, so that sort of you're competing with the same, not against other asset classes. Now, whether whether that comes to fruition, I don't know, but certainly that would be useful. Um, but I but I do see that for us to get to this twenty fifty position that we want to get to, we have to be looking at all different asset classes to get there, um, and, and effectively. Uh, no over-reliance on one technology it, it, it is no bad thing.
0: And if you had to stick a finger in the air, I mean, it, it, in terms of prices, I mean, obviously traditionally onshore wind was cheaper than offshore wind, much cheaper um, in the early iterations. And um, But we've seen, we've already noted such great strides made by offshore um, over the past rounds. I mean, with onshore coming back in, would did you have any idea of where a Roughly that would would sit alongside offshore. I, I would
2: like to second guess it, John. Um, to be to be perfectly honest. I I would agree with you though that basically sort of if you see where offshore has got to and where onshore start is, and, and so we're gonna see it's gonna be extremely competitive. Got to be extremely competitive. Um, and going back to sort of the the costs of development, the costs of manufacturing, every every component has fallen in terms of its price, which is a positive. So therefore the strike prices will be lower. Um, I wouldn't like to put a, a finger in the air to say where where it could go to. But if you look at it, it's gonna it's 40, 39 pounds on offshore now, so it's gonna be going to be lower than that. Um, so whether whether we do start to see significant reductions from that level for, for offshore and, and solar, the trajectory looks like that's gonna happen. Um, and that shows that the market is performing in the way that we expect it to perform. That basically, the cost of subsidy is reducing over time. The cost of the consumer is coming down over time. All, all of those things are important. So, and it, and it, it is a drive down to to make it sustainable, make it um, efficient at the least possible cost.
0: Just, just final question then, Nath, um For you, I mean, with the CFDs potentially on the horizon for onshore wind and solar, I'm just keen to uh, understand. You know, your um, experience of, uh, in what sense do you think that developers are now looking at that and, and counting on that potentially participating in those um, situations, or do you think it's just no, no one's counting those those chickens just yet, and um, they'll kind of react and and proceed on on the the, the basis they they've kind of got used to
1: um over the last last few years i think i think that is a, is a really good question john um, i was talking to uh the cfo of a uk renewable developer uh, just last week actually and um i won't name names but it was a developer that had a, a an interesting role shall we say oh. in the um in the uh, position that the government's now taken, whereby it's brought or, or, or saying that it will bring back uh, onshore wind and solar into the CFD regime, and um, therefore I think his view is uh, is a good barometer of the market view because he's been you know, very active and and vocal um, in that uh, in that process, and he was saying, look, you know we just don't know what's going to happen around this. Um, we're really hopeful and we're actually quite optimistic, um, but we have to be because otherwise, what was the point of you know, the, the work and the lobbying we've done to achieve this, uh, you know, this latest concession over the last few years? Um, so you know, they are probably um, as close to anyone uh, around, you know, kind of trying to predict what's going to happen. Um, but their view is, look, we've just got to wait and see. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really kind of the onshore wind space, but it crosses into solar as well. Um, so there's probably a bit easier to be honest, um, to develop in the absence of that safety certainty, there are more sites available. You don't have the same, uh, geographically that is, you don't have the same planning issues that you do with onshore wind. Um, and you know, the competition for the best sites is, is, is potentially a bit easier. Um, but you know, I think for both technologies, it, you know, no, nobody's counting any chickens. But it will be a substantial kind of boon for the sector um, if the news that comes out of the, uh, of the consultation process is material and significant. <laughs>
0: very much to Nathan Christair for offering up their expertise on what is the ever-evolving financing market for UK renewables. The Joint Venture will return very soon with more episodes on the global renewables and infrastructure sectors but in the meantime don't forget to subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast and haven't done so already. But for now all that's left for me to do is thank today's guests once more and thank you for listening. Goodbye.